All right, as promised, the top of the program, we'll now go to Washington, D.C. to speak with our good pal, Benjamin Jonas. Welcome back to the program, Benjamin. Thank you, Doug. Always a pleasure to join you. And, of course, we have told our listeners that uh, of the good work you're doing at The Voice of America, which is, uh, you know, is attempting to reach out to other nations, and in particular, your division is reaching out to Iran. And that, of course, is now center stage in, in, in all of the world's uh, media outlets. Well, it is. Voice of America broadcasts in 46 different languages. Persian is um, is but one of those languages, but we certainly are the, the centerpiece these days, given all the, the social unrest happening uh, in that corner of the world these days. Well, when I was fortunate enough to be in Washington, D.C., I guess it was last summer, and, and get a tour of your facilities, uh, I was very impressed by just, just how many people you have employed there and, and, and how hard at work you guys are getting radio and television into Iran. Well, it's really a massive effort, Doug. Um, the Persian News Network, which is a, a division within the Voice of America that broadcasts in Farsi to Iran, um, puts out seven, well, originally, before, this, uh, before the, the problems occurred in, in Iran recently, uh, seven hours of television a day plus uh, radio and, and 24-7 web effort. Uh, we've just upped our radio brought our television broadcast schedule to 10 hours a day. So we've just added three hours a day uh, recently, and we've got people working double shifts around the clock um, just to, to keep this thing moving. Well, my, my question is, uh, are, are, you, are you sure you're getting through? I have a couple of, uh, of hair cutters here in the neighborhood, they, they, the ones that, that cut my hair. They're both uh, Persian, and I was talking to them a couple days back about what's going on, and they said among other things, that like they can't talk to their mother, that they're, they're actually, the state has really cracked down on all uh, communications, and her mom was just, just sort of quietly saying, oh, yes, there's been a little trouble with the election. That's about all she could say. And I gathered from right. them that there's been a real effort to, to shut out uh, other sources of, of media. So are, are you getting through? Well, it is a cat-and-mouse game. The Iranian government has been um, confiscating satellite dishes from people uh, within the country, and they've also been doing their best to jam our satellite signals. Um, we respond. We have some very clever engineers at the Voice of America who are continually gaining new satellite paths for us to make sure that our signal is able to get into Iran. And also, um, they, uh, they try some clever little tricks, like placing our satellite frequency right next to the frequency of the Iranian state television. So if they try to jam us, they also jam their own signal. Ah. <laughs> yeah. So these are the kinds of things that, that we're involved in to make sure that our signal gets into Iran. And I might add, Doug, too, that, that, um, that satellite res uh, television is very, very popular in Iran. Um, it's not so popular here or in other parts of the world, but in Iran, satellite dishes are ubiquitous. Oh. We reach... Um, on satellite te television, 30% of the television audience inside Iran. Huge penetration. Wow. I, I know that uh, a lot of people have taken an interest in your efforts, and Al Jazeera and CNN and, and Fox News, just about everybody's been, been over to, to, to see what, what you guys are up to. That, so it must be really adding to the difficulties of doing your job. Well, it's, but it's welcome. You know, it's nice that people can see what we're doing and the importance of, of, of the work. Um, it is sort of funny if you take a step back and look at it that at our busiest time, that's the time when we really have to um, 
you know, step up and make uh, make visitors welcome, and that just adds to the workload. But we're certainly happy to do it, and uh, happy to open our doors and let people see what's happening. Well, uh, Benjamin, I know you you don't uh, you don't hold yourself out as an expert on Iranian affairs, but certainly you know in your employ are numerous people that that are. Uh, do they have a sense of where this is going? Well, if anybody's guess right now, um, what we're seeing is uh, a cooling down of the situation at the moment. Um, I can tell you that uh, the number of videos that we're receiving from people inside Iran is on the decrease. Um, I can't predict where things will go, but I do know the crackdown is is not letting up. Um, Recently, we've been watching um, the Iranian state television, and we noticed that the, the news is just as censored as always, and you know, where they report that perhaps a demonstration in a main part of town was really nothing and just kind of broke up uh, very easily, uh, we know that's not the case. We know that from reports that we get from within Iran that, that in fact, um, the crackdown is much heavier than they report. And um, we provide a platform to, to tell the people about that uh, inside Iran. Um, recently, the Iranian government shut down a newspaper that was going to publish the comments of an opposition leader, and uh, we announced those comments on our morning newscast. So um, so the, the efforts of the Iranian government are not abating, and uh, that just makes our presence um, all that much more important so that, so that people inside Iran have access to accurate news. That's what we try to do every day. Well, you mentioned feedback. I know when I was at work a couple of days ago, and a couple of guys that uh, that are in the clinic were taking a look at what was available. And I'm gathering that the new technology, cell phones, and such, are making it possible for people in Iran to to get images of what's going on uh, out of the country with an ease that we've never seen before. Well, it is true. the The people inside Iran are very tech savvy, um, as we talked about. You know, um, satellite dishes are ubiquitous. Everybody's got cell phones, too, and these cell phones all seem to have the capability to take pictures and, and send movies, and and that's what they're doing. They're not only flooding us with these images, but other media as well. You've seen the images on CNN, I'm sure. And if you take a look at the pictures, you'll notice that everybody within uh, on the streets is holding up cell phones, recording all the events around them. Yeah. So it's, it's very problematic for the Iranian government. They're doing their best to shut down the media, shut down what the outside world sees. You'll hear comparisons to Tiananmen Square where, you know, we had to wait, you know, days to, to get information and images out about what was happening there. Um, with this event in Iran, um, it's almost instantaneous. You know, people are uploading pictures onto the web, they're sending uh, videos to news outlets, and this stuff is getting turned around very quickly so that the rest of the world can, can see with their own eyes what's happening. Well, I'm sort of encouraged by that. They say, you know, a picture's worth a thousand words, and some of the images I saw of, like, these motorcycle thugs pulling in to put down uh, people protesting, I mean, it really, it just told the story uh, without without even having to be explained. It really does, and, you know, the images are very, um, you know, they're very alarming at times, and one of the things we have to do as journalists is, is be very careful in this new world of, you know, quick dissemination of electronic media from sources that you're not able to you know, uh, identify. We have a team of people in our newsroom that calls through these videos, and and we only decide to air the ones that we have a, you know, 
virtual certainty or a great deal of, of trust in that they are, in fact, real. You know, we look for cues in the background. We look for landmarks. We look for um, events that we know that, that happened on a particular date and, um, and really are only able to air the ones, um, just a small percentage of them, that we're absolutely certain are authentic. And then we always air a disclaimer with them too, saying that you know these videos are coming from an from an unverified source. Well, I never thought about it until you mentioned it, but I guess a lot of the work that's going on in the VOA is sort of analogous to what they have to do in intelligence agencies and trying to you know to assess to just like as you're describing, assess value to the data you're getting. Well, I wouldn't know about that, but it sounds reasonable. I'm a journalist, Dad, not a spy. Uh, I, I wasn't. I wasn't making that. I was not making that implication. <laughs> but you bring up a good point when you say that. Uh, for even even for this show, we do try to have to make that judgment call on you know how good is this data that you're hearing, and of course that's uh, that's so important now as as the eyes of the world are on Iran. Well, it really is, and um, of course you've heard that the Iranian government well they banned reporters to uh, to hotels. They don't allow cameras out on the streets. So it is hard to get uh, video out from established news sources. Um, so we do have to rely on what are often called citizen journalists for, for images. I, I know you don't have a crystal ball, and no one else, else does either, but uh, I know if you've you know, followed events in Iran a couple decades, or I guess it was three decades ago now, it sort of did seem to come in waves, and that the sort of things would settle down, and they would rise up again. And then some have said that we're we seem to be seeing the sort of the similar pattern now that it quiets down and then sort of pops up again. Well, hopefully, at some point, you know, humanity will learn from history. Things are getting better, I hope, globally. Um, but there always seem to be these sorts of turmoils that we have to deal with, and we just uh, do the best we can, I guess. Well, I know you have to maintain a, a, a certain. Uh, 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 neutrality in this, but I tell you, I'm really pulling for the Iranian people to throw off this government. So, so I guess I'll just leave it at that. Well, our job at The Voice of America is to tell the story and to let the people decide. You know, we're dedicated to journalism and to truth, and um, we don't subscribe to any one particular view. We're not trying to overthrow a regime with our broadcasts. We're just trying to deliver the truth to the people that are in desperate need of free media, and um, they make their decision once they hear the story. Well, I, I can tell you, Benjamin, I've had a chance to ask, like the gals that are cutting my hair, whether they're, they're aware of other sources of, of, of data that gets in there, and, and I was told that, yes, yes, it does get in, and yes, they do appreciate it. So I can, I can relay that to you. Well, that's good to hear. I, I appreciate that a lot, and I'll pass that word along to the, the good people that are working very hard in our newsroom. Benjamin, it's, uh, it's, it's been a pleasure, and hope that, uh, you know, as, in the weeks and months, as this, as this I presume, story's not going to go away, you can, you can come back and uh, update us. I'd be happy to come on anytime, Doug. It's always a pleasure to be on Radio Parallax. Benjamin Jonas is the staff director for the Persian News Network at The Voice of America. Thank you. Thank you, Doug. All right, let's talk about some other things. From the miscellaneous slash media file, we have this. A memoir by George Obama, the president's half-brother and a resident of Kenya, will be published by Simon & Schuster in January of next year. 
George Obama, 27, shares the same father with his famous older half-sibling, although George and Barack did not grow up together and did not meet as children. Note of the press reports, little is known about George Obama. The book, however, apparently does have a title. The title will be Homeland and is to be written with a co-author. The plot? George Obama's fall into crime and poverty as a teenager and his eventual embracing of community organizing, a passion he shares with the president, and of his advocacy for the poor. An identification so strong, say the reports, that he chooses to live among them. And no, we frankly don't have high hopes for Homeland. Of course, that's just my opinion, an opinion like all others heard on this program, which do not necessarily represent those of KDVS, any of our sponsors, or the University of California. We keep meaning to talk about that article on Iceland, and I guess there's no time like the present. This was in Vanity Fair in April. Like a lot of the great writing in Vanity Fair is quite provocative and insightful. It was written by Michael Lewis after some extensive research in Iceland. And let's just hit a couple high points. Article started with, just after, after October 6, 2008, when Iceland effectively went bust, I spoke to a man at the International Monetary Fund who'd been flown to Reykjavik to determine if money might responsibly be lent to such a spectacularly bankrupt nation. He has spent his life dealing with famously distressed countries, usually in Africa, perpetually in one kind of financial trouble or another. Iceland was entirely new to his experience, a nation of extremely well-to-do. In fact, as we reported on the show, it was number one in the UN's 2008 Human Development Index. Icelanders were described as well-educated, historically rational human beings who had organized themselves to commit one of the greatest single acts of madness in financial history. You have to understand, he told me, Iceland is no longer a country. It's a hedge fund. An entire nation without immediate experience or even distant memory of high finance had gazed upon the example of Wall Street and said, we can do that. For a brief moment, it appeared they could. In 2003, Iceland's three biggest banks had assets of only a few billion dollars, about 100% of its gross domestic product. Over the next three and a half years, they grew to $140 billion and were so much greater than Iceland's GDP that it made no sense to calculate the percentage of it they accounted for. It was, as one economist put it to me, the most rapid expansion of a banking system in the history of mankind. At the same time, in part because the banks were also lending Icelanders money to buy stocks and real estate, the value of Icelandic stocks and real estate went through the roof. From 2003 to 07, while the U.S. stock market doubled, the Icelandic stock market multiplied nine times. By 06, the average Icelandic family was three times as wealthy, wealthy as it had been three years before, and virtually all of this new wealth was one way or another tied to the new investment banking industry. Anyway, I hope that what's your appetite uh, for what follows in the article, which I'll just hit a highlight or two, but it's amazing that the Icelandic kroner, which I was using last summer, was taken off the market last fall. The article explains how a bunch of seemingly 20-somethings um, basically seized control of their investment banks and decided that, you know, you can make fortunes by pushing around pieces of paper a lot more than you could with productive enterprise, so... That's what they went into, whole hog. The article describes the Icelanders' uh, 
lesson they took from watching what was going on in America, which to them apparently was buy as many assets as possible with borrowed money. By 07, Icelanders owned 50 times more foreign assets than they had in 02. They brought They bought private jets and third homes in London and Copenhagen. They paid vast sums of money for services no one in Iceland had heretofore ever imagined wanting. A guy had a birthday party and he flew in Elton John for a million dollars to sing two songs, said Steingrimmer Sigurdsson, the head of the left green movement, adding they bought stakes in businesses they knew nothing about and told people running them what to do, just like real American investment bankers. For example, an investment company called FL Group bought an 8% stake in American Airlines' parent corporation. No one inside FL Group had ever actually run an airline. In fact, no one in the FL Group had had meaningful work experience at an airline. That did not stop FL Group from telling American Airlines how to run an airline. Anyway, worthwhile article. I hope you'll check it out. But uh, the summary was uh, near the end of the article saying that the bankers in Iceland responsible for all of this were incredibly young, They were all from the same community in Reykjavik, and they had no idea what they were doing. All right, we have a call here, I guess. Wait, a call? Okay, we have a call from Minnesota. Hello, caller. This is Radio Parallax. Hello, Doug. Yeah, this is Al Franken. How are you? This is the Al Franken? This is me, Al Franken, calling from Minnesota. I'm a little tired, you know, because I've been interviewing all week about this whole... Well, nice, nice of you to think of calling us. Well, you know, I, I just try to you know, make sure that I, you know, get my people seated all over the country, you know, because you never know, you know, people are saying, well, you know. 20, well, Al, when you, when, you came to Sa- when you came to Sacramento some, some years back, uh, you were kind of short with us in the interview a little bit. But, I, but I, you know, let's let bygones be bygones. We're, we're glad to have you on board. Well, I, I, that's one of the reasons I'm calling, because, uh, you know, I, I felt a little bad about that, so... You know, I figured maybe I could make it up to you by calling you right after I got confirmed. Well, yeah, we, we appreciate that very much. So I guess I guess it's official now. You've edged out Norm Coleman by 312 votes. That, that is correct, 312 votes. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. I mean, I felt really good at first, but uh, then I heard that 300 of those people thought they were voting for Stuart Smalley. So, oh, uh, it does take some know, of the luster off the vic- victory, I guess. Yeah, yeah it kind of did. But, you know... The thing to remember, Doug, is that, you know, I have no ill will against, you know, Mr. Coleman or anything. I mean, he ran a great race, you know, and I, I wound up on top. And uh, I have no ill feelings the fact that he challenged the results, you know, although I did hear that his next mission is to be, he's going to be challenging the Michael Jackson will. But, you know, I don't really care about that. I forgive him, you know, he ran a great race. Yeah, by the way, uh, as newly elected senator, Senator, do you have any comments upon the demise of, of the late Michael Jackson? Um, um, not really, except that I, I do love his music, you know. I mean, everybody did. You know, I'm, I, I still have the record. Do you, all, do you have any you favorites? Know. Well, the, uh, yeah, Thriller was pretty good, you know. I mean, that, that was not bad. You know, it was pretty good. Although, I do have to say that, you know, I, my, my wife doesn't like it when I play and prance around and grab my crotch, you know. But other than that, you know, it's pretty good. Well, Al, let me ask you this. There's, uh, if I may call you Al, there's a senator, I guess I should say. Uh, the AP yeah. News story out of St. Paul is asking which Al Franken is headed for the Senate. Uh, they're asking, will it be the passionate, sometimes angry liberal who hurled insults at Rush Limbaugh, or the cautious, serious Franken who buttoned himself down 
when he hit the campaign trail? Uh, I think it's gonna it's gonna be the Saturday Night Live Al Franken. I, I think that's what I decided because that's what people really know and love. Doug. You know, I mean the serious side. I needed that to get elected. You know, like you know, like Obama did. But really, so you're you're planning to be cutting up on the Senate floor? I think that's the way to go. I mean, don't you agree? I I, I think that'll get the well, most. Well, the Senate could use quite a bit more comedy. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of in favor of that idea. You know, for example, if you know if I have trouble getting something passed, some bill that I wrote, you know, I just break into a Stuart Small impression, you know, and I got them on my side, you know. I mean, I really think that this is going to be the term of me, Al Franken. It's the Al Franken term. Well, Senator Al Franken, we're, we're pleased to hear from you. There's a lot of background noise, I noticed. Where, where are you right now? Well, we're at a little victory party here in, uh, you know, here in Minneapolis. We're just sort of like hanging out, having some burgers and fries and, you know, and uh, see if we can get Norm Coleman on the phone and do some prank calls, you know, but... You haven't having trouble finding him. All right. Well, but, if you can find him, please have have him give us a call too. Would you? We we will. We will, Doug. And I, I appreciate you having me on your show. And, and uh, I look forward to serving the people of Minnesota. And I, I'm not the 60th senator, a, a Democratic senator. I, I'm more like the second senator of, Min- of Minnesota and the first senator from Saturday Night Live. Well, very good. We hope that you'll come back on the show again. And I'll just, if you don't mind, I'll just use the number here off the phone and call you back. Any, any time, Doug. And, and uh, by the way, I, I heard that Chevy's going to be running in Wisconsin uh, next term, so watch out. You know, we're, we're taking over. All right. Senator Al Franken, thanks, thanks for the call. You're welcome, Doug. All right, uh, let's, let's take a short break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett.